Welcome to our discussion segment on The Trail of the Past. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Let's get started. Hey, John, we're back. We are. We're so, you as excited as I am? I am. I am. Folks, we are so excited to be back. Very uh, pumped after a long break. Yep. So we're, we have Agreed. an exciting season planned for you. Yep, and I'm 24 hours back from France and still vertical. So I'll, I'll, call, this, I'll call this a win. <laughs> yeah, that's an accomplishment in its own right. <laughs> so, John, first question for you. Part of the challenge with this season is... How do we figure out what were the turning points in history? Because one could argue every point in history is a turning point. Yes, a, a point that you probably learned in the podcast. I made that exact point. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to point that out, yeah. but yes, absolutely. <laughs> Tell me your rationale for choosing the turning points. Because, I mean, you chose some and I chose some. How do you think about it? How do you separate those pivotal points versus those that may not be so pivotal? Well, it has to be done in hindsight because we don't know most of the time, the people who are witnessing these events don't know that, that it's a turning point. There have been times where politicians and other world leaders have claimed that they're living in a turning point, but it turns out it really wasn't. It was kind of continuing trends that had already existed. So you have to look at major shifts in whether it's military affairs or cultural or political or whatever area of history you're studying to see what is a turning point and what were the causes of that, that shift in what again whatever area you're studying so that's what that's what i did i I picked out and and you picked out i assume you had kind of the same criteria yeah that's the the kind of the parameters that i set for myself and then it was really i mean a lot of it's 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 the stuff that interests me it's the stuff that i want to then share with our audience it's the same process i use in terms of what are we going to cover in history class because there's so much to cover so you you go with what's truly important and really what interests you because when we're talking about stuff that doesn't interest us, the audience isn't interested either. And that's kind of, you know, some, some self-promotion on my part. I don't want to talk about stuff that's boring because then you guys will be bored and I don't want to do that to you. And I'll be bored too. Which exactly. Is, and and it's, this, is, this whole thing is really just an exercise in entertaining Joe. <laughs> well, I'm glad we finally admitted that. <laughs> uh, so uh, on, on that same topic, why, why did you want to start with these three events? Why did these three stand out to you? I wanted to do ones that were either very well known, like the Emancipation Proclamation, or ones that could be done quickly, basically as a way to kind of intro what we're going to be doing this season in terms of looking at the events, unpacking them, and seeing how they've affected us today. That's really going to be the format for this entire season, and I wanted to give people kind of whet their appetites with these three turning points. Great. And also to make the point, as I said in the podcast repeatedly, this is not about alternative history. It's not about speculative history. This is not going to be a what-if season or anything like that. It's going to be focused on real history. The the Churchill one was the only speculation there, and really there wasn't much of that. Yeah, so jumping into it then, when I think of Gutenberg, what you wrote and talked about in the podcast is not something I usually think of. Yeah. People only think and associate him with the one act, mm-hmm. with the creation of the printing press. Yep. So, and, the, and the publishing of the first Bibles. Right, yep. right. So in those terms, for most people, that's where the history stops. Mm-hmm. And so what I really liked about this was how you gave a great intro into maybe why he had to create it, <laughs> but also what were the results of it. So as a historian, when you read about him and what he did, how did the events that you talked about in the podcast feed into his creation? And then like what from there can we draw like in terms of did, did do you think that he knew what he was doing? Like he was going to change history? No, through this? no, I think he was okay. trying to make a quick buck. Okay. I mean, I mean, 
quite frankly, he was a bit of a bit of a swindler. One of the things I love about what I do is the chance to kind of dig into stories about people in the past and to go beyond what most people have learned in, in history classes or History Channel documentaries. To see a German swindler kind of accidentally change history was fascinating to me. So I don't think he set out to change the world or anything like that. Um, just like I don't think Abraham Lincoln was really, when he was elected, he didn't necessarily want to change the world. He wanted to preserve the union, but we'll, I'm sure, come back to that. Yeah. So th there's a lot of quick ways to make a buck. Why did he do this? What was the attraction to it? It was in his wheelhouse. It was something that he knew how to do. He was a machinist. He worked with metal, and so he was able to use it to create copper engravings and then to print not just the Bible, but but poems. But it was it's what he knew how to do. We We all, as human beings, we make money doing what we know, doing what we love. And I think we can see that him pursuing his passions gave us the world. I mean, yeah, basically, <laughs> modern it gave world. Us, I mean, it led directly to the information age that we live in right now. Yeah, I read that by 2002, within, I think, one year, more content had been created than all the years leading up to that year online. In 2002? Yeah. yeah that that yeah. doesn't surprise me. So I can't I mean, even the, imagine how much content's been created now. Oh, yeah. I'm, well, the total, I think... I think it's every five years now. The total sum of human knowledge doubles every five years now yeah. because of the internet and, and traditional publishing all really stemming from Gutenberg. Yep. So when we think about the Emancipation Proclamation, most people associated with the freeing of slaves. You had a great uh, point in the podcast where it actually didn't free anyone. Correct. So you explained why it happened. What, that it was a war measure. Right, yes. right, yeah. So can you give our audience a measure of what it actually did, like what it accomplished. You, you talked about it a little bit, but how was it felt by the South and how was it felt in the North? Well, in the South, it was just more evidence of Lincoln's anti-slavery aggression. They viewed him from the beginning as someone who was going to come in and take away their quote-unquote property, their slaves. And then in the North, the Emancipation Proclamation was seen for what it was, that it, it, was, a, it was a war measure. It was designed to, one— state the Union government's opposition really for the first time to the institution of slavery and to get the abolitionists basically off of Lincoln's back and bring them into the cause of prosecuting the war, ending slavery, and ending the rebellion against the Union and against the Constitution. That was the public view of the Emancipation Proclamation at the time. Lincoln was not seen as the great emancipator until really after his death, but until the passage of the 13th Amendment. That goes back to your comment earlier about he didn't set out to change change history. It was something that just happened as a result of, of his actions. I think historically we can look back on people who had the intention to change history and changed it actually for the worse. Sometimes, and, yeah. yeah. I mean, Churchill, I think, changed it for the better, and he very clearly wanted to. But then, you know, to complete the World War II metaphor, so did Hitler, and he changed it for the worse. Yeah. So when people think about the Civil War, a lot of the times they immediately go to Gettysburg. Describe Antietam for us. Why was that such a pivotal battle in the Civil War? Well, it, was, it wasn't necessarily pivotal apart from it, the quote-unquote victory, allowing Lincoln to then claim basically the popular mandate to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. So it's not a turning point per se, but it is the bloodiest single day in American history. More Americans died at Antietam in one 24-hour period than at any other point in American history. And it was uh, such a bloody day for a number of reasons. Partially, you have the classic conundrum of new technology being merged with outdated tactics. The tactics of the Civil War, fighting in line and column, were basically unchanged since 
oh, about 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia, but soldiers are now carrying rifles that can fire with really good accuracy out to 300 yards instead of 30 yards, as was the case, for example, in the Revolutionary War. That is a constant problem in the, uh, in the Civil War. It's not till the end of the war with the Siege of Petersburg that that starts to change. So soldiers are in very, very close combat. They're fighting, in some cases, hand-to-hand. That ups the, the body count, so to speak. And then you have the lunacy of one of McClellan's field commanders, Ambrose Burnside, just hurling one brigade of, of soldiers into battle after another one, you know, again and again and again, trying to take a bridge. And Burnside really, he got tunnel vision. He said, okay, I'm supposed to take the bridge. I'm going to take the bridge, meaning the physical crossing. McClellan didn't mean that. He meant get across the river. But Burnside said, well, my orders say take the bridge, so I'm going to take the bridge. So I think he lost four or 5,000 men taking this rickety little bridge south of the town of Sharpsburg. That's crazy. Yep. Why were the Confederate states so confident? In the podcast, you say to our Southern audience, uh, not to offend oh, anyone. No. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, th- there, there is the reality that they didn't have the same type of supplies as mm-hmm. the Union, obviously. Neither so- did we when we went up against the British. I mean, they saw this as their version of the American War of Independence. So what was the difference? The difference was you didn't have an ocean between the mother country and where the war was taking place. And again, it goes back to technology. The Civil War was won by the soldiers on the battlefield, but it was the technology of railroads and canals and industrial production that the Union had, which enabled their soldiers to get to the battlefield with the supplies, with the ammunition, with the weapons that they had to overcome the Confederacy. The Confederacy simply didn't have that infrastructure and that logistical support to be able to get its troops into battle at the right place at the right time. So they're fighting with outdated weapons. They're fighting, many of them, without shoes. And you don't think good shoes are important. Try walking through a forest with bare feet. Now try running through a forest with bare feet. Now try running through a forest with someone shooting at you with bare feet. Yeah. Good shoes are important. Yes, they are. Take care of your feet, people. So the Emancipation Proclamation, we've already talked about the fact that it didn't actually free anyone. Right. Uh, why is this section titled the new birth, like a new birth of freedom in terms of when you're th- thinking about the Civil War as a whole? You zero in specifically on this. It wasn't the reason why freedom occurred. No, but it got the ball rolling. It was that moment where the trend of American history was we are going to continue to own our fellow human beings. And then you had, because of the Emancipation Proclamation, the abolitionists get on board with destroying the Confederacy ending slavery by military means rather than trying to seek legal or social ways of solving this great crime in American history. It all started with the Emancipation Proclamation. New Birth of Freedom is a quote from, I believe it's Lincoln's second inaugural, talking about this whole period. So that's why I titled the section that. Do you believe the outcome would have been the same if he hadn't proclaimed that? The outcome of winning the war or the outcome of freeing the slaves? Both. Winning the war, yes. Okay. Uh, it probably would have taken longer because abolitionists joining the cause did contribute to more soldiers becoming to join the fight. Slavery was on its way out. I mean, it was already, by 1860, the most inefficient economic system in the world because we hadn't had communism yet. You can't have a modern industrialized society next to a slave-based agrarian society and expect to have any hope of prosperity. And with the invention of artificial textiles in Europe a year before the Civil War started, you don't need cotton in nearly the same level of demand as you had for the previous two centuries. So bottom line, 
I think eventually slavery would have disappeared, but it probably would have been a longer and probably more violent process than what actually ultimately happened, and more violent towards innocent civilians. Civil War was violent enough, but... Do you think the president meant it in terms of, or do you think it was just like a political... abolition? Yeah. Yes, I do. Good. I think by 1862, he had come to see and understand the true evils of slavery. Certainly by 1863 in the Gettysburg Address, and that's where the quote was, was yeah. from, not, sorry, not his second inaugural. By the time he, he issues the, or gives the, uh, his speech at Gettysburg, he was ardently abolitionist. So yes, politics was part of it. It's part of everything when you're the president of the United States, but it did reflect his genuine belief in the evils of slavery. Yeah. In his early writings, he does comment a lot about it in a negative way. Oh, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln did not believe in the equality of white and black people in terms of, in terms of at a social level. I mean, to his dying day, he, he's quoted as saying that he does not believe that white and, and black Americans are equal, but he wanted them to be recognized as equally human before the law. And that was the, the purpose for him of the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment. I think that's going to be hard for people to hear because he's always portrayed in a specific way. Plus, I mean, he, in his personal letters, he wrote about how much he hated slavery specifically because it was so awful. Yes. And it wasn't specific to a skin color. It was just the actual trade itself. Mm-hmm. The fact that human beings were being traded for cash is yeah. something that he was privately against. And I think that historically we see that him trying to turn the tide of culture almost for that, that had been there for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. It was interesting on how he rolled that out publicly, his thoughts on that. That's hard to hear. It is. Yeah. But it's historical truth. I mean, it's, it's, you can say it isn't, but it's there on paper. Yeah. So no definite guarantee of safety. I'm really interested in what possessed you to choose this one. I know in the introduction you talked about this is not about speculative history, and you don't really get into that. You do report the facts of the case, yeah. but it, it, it is a very interesting question to say, like, Churchill thought he was dead. Mm-hmm. Like, he was very much so. Like, And I love how, when he described his own experience, how detached he felt from the actual... Yeah. From, from I, the event? Or, or do you think that that was like tongue-in-cheek? I don't, I don't know. When you read Churchill, especially when you read him after a significant period of time has elapsed, he doesn't ever lie, but boy, does he embellish. I mean, the entirety of his six-volume Second World War memoirs, if you read that and then you read a history of the Second World War, there's some stuff in there that's like, Winston, come on. I mean— I'll just give, I'll give you one example. The meeting that supposedly took place between him and the, uh, the Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, and the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, when the question was, is Churchill going to take over as Prime Minister during the German invasion of France? Churchill tells this story where he is very humble, and he's, he's just sitting there quietly and waiting for Lord Halifax to make the move and say, okay, Winston, you should take over. But in fact, we now know that Churchill was the one kind of saying, no, it has to be me. Halifax, he can't run the government. He's, he's in the House of Lords. That's, that's not going to work in our constitutional system. He presents himself as the statesman rising above it, and he was just as much a politician as anybody else. So I say all of that to say I don't know if he was actually as dispassionate in the moment in 1928 when he had just been hit by a car. I rather doubt it because he was such an emotional human being. Yeah, that's... He would cry at the drop of a hat. So... Someone like that, someone who, in his words, would blub at anything, I find it hard to believe he would say, I experienced no emotion of regret or fear 
okay. I mean, he was very much a stereotypically very masculine male in the uh, tw- early 20th century viewpoint where he doesn't talk about emotions or anything like that. But I think he probably did feel some fear at that moment confronting death, though he had been shot at eight or nine times by that point in his life. So maybe he didn't. I, don't, I really don't know. Yeah. It's interesting to think about what he actually cried over. It, was it about himself or was it about specific specific events that he was involved oh, in? Oh, no, it was never about himself. It yeah. was, it was so other that's people. That's why I was, yeah. I was that's, thinking, That's yeah, a good point. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting thing where you read that, you're just kind of like, that's very matter of fact. It's not overly, it doesn't seem embellished, but to your point, he embellishes very, very well. He, he does. He's a master at he it. He does, yes. And I also just love that he, in his own recollections of this, he says basically it's because he forgot to look both ways. He didn't know that red lights were a thing here in the United States yeah. and forgot the opposite rule of the road, which if you go to London today on the sidewalks, they have painted look left, or I'm sorry, look right to make sure that tourists look the right direction and don't accidentally get pancaked by a taxi or a double-decker bus. So they've, they've learned from Winston's experience. Yeah. I think we can all agree Churchill's place in history is, is, is an important one. That's the obvious statement of the day. Yes. Um, and there are many times in Churchill's life where you can say, oh, he almost died. So when you included the account here, mm-hmm. what separated this account from his time in combat, from everything else that ever happened to him? Yeah, because it was so, I mean, ba- battle is random in many ways, but it was so unexpected. When you are on the battlefield, whether you're in South Africa or in Cuba or on the Western Front in France and Belgium, you expect at the back of your mind to die. Walking the streets of New York in 1931, you don't expect to die just on the street. And so that's why I chose this as opposed to one of the other times that he almost died. Can you possibly summarize for our audience the you know, legacy? When you, when you ask me, can I summarize? <laughs> it terrifies me. The whole concept of this podcast is that it's 15 minutes uh-huh. long. It's like yeah. the nature of what we do. Okay. So can you please summarize the legacy of Churchill quickly and describe the, his policy on India and why it matters? Okay. Well, his legacy overall is probably best summarized by the fact that he is almost, I mean, he is regularly cited as the greatest prime minister, certainly of the 20th century, possibly in all of British history. Even though he was voted out after the war immediately? I mean, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Jumped in. He saved, he saved the empire. Well, no, he saved Britain, lost the empire, but anyway, so his legacy is secure in terms of what he did during the second world war. In terms of his, you, t- you mentioned India. I assume you're talking about some of his more controversial decisions and things of that nature. Yeah, because, I mean, modern day, we wouldn't look on his position and policy on India as something, something to be favored oh, no. or agreed no, with. No, 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 no. I mean, his, his policy on, or his, his beliefs on race were very typical of a man who grew up in the Victorian and Edwardian era, that of the British... Anglo-Saxon race being a civilizing influence. It was very elitist. People. It was very elitist. It was, it was racist because it was grounded in color, in, at least in part. The things that he called Gandhi were reprehensible. You can't defend them. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not defending them, but it has to be understood in the context of the time. Churchill was no more racist than any other British leader or most average Britons at that time. So to say that Churchill was especially bad because of his policy on that is, I think, a disingenuous criticism of him. But you wanted the summary. Basically, he thought that Indian independence was a plot by 
people who didn't know how to govern themselves, people who were not capable of self-government, to bring down the British Empire. And so he opposed Gandhi and Nehru and the others who were involved in Indian independence. He basically looked at them as second-class human beings who were not capable and not worthy of ruling the Indian subcontinent because they hadn't won it. We, the British, we won it in wars. It's ours. You can't take it from us. Even though we don't live there, the government in London, you do, it's still not your land. Right. So recent films and, and popular culture image of Churchill is this towering statesman who never made any kind of mistakes or anything like that. But there was a common criticism of Churchill. I forget who originated the quote I'm summarizing. He's a man of ideas. He'll have 100 ideas an hour. 98 of them will be disastrous and two of them will be great. And in many ways, that was true. I mean, his policy at Gallipoli in World War I, his policy on the gold standard, his policy towards India, he had some pretty serious blunders, many of which cost a lot of lives or ruined people's livelihoods. His gold standard policy in, 19, in the 1930s was pretty bad, even though it was free market, and my free market friends will hate me for saying that, but his, his gold standard policy was ridiculous. Gallipoli was a colossal disaster that cost the lives of tens of thousands of people. He wasn't this perfect human being. He was flawed just like all of us are. So that brings up a really good question. In the three events that you talked about in this podcast, we learn about people who are flawed. Mm -hmm. Like historically, they're seen in a specific way. And as we said last season, what we see our job as is to give you all insight into history as it actually was. There is a tendency right now in society to dismiss specific people or events because it makes us feel uncomfortable because we look at through our current moral shade or lens mm -hmm. and either to demonize these people because of their flaws, completely throwing out everything they've done or just ignore them. What's the danger in both? And what's a mature way to read these times in history and read about people who, surprisingly enough, everyone has flaws, everyone, and not excusing behaviors, not yeah. excusing terrible ideas. But as we read through history, how do you communicate this to students and how would you communicate this to our audience? I think the answer is in the question. You do it not by ignoring those people. Certainly, you need to understand these people so you don't exclude them from history. You don't say, well, we're not going to talk about this because it might make you feel uncomfortable. What I'm about to say might make people uncomfortable, but it's okay. It's actually good to have your ideas and your positions and your beliefs challenged. It's not something that should make you recoil in horror when someone says something you disagree with or when you are asked to study someone who you dislike. I mean, I've kind of built my career professionally studying the Second World War, not because I like Hitler and what he did, but because I am appalled and repulsed by what he did. But that doesn't mean you ignore it. So when you take someone like, we'll start with Churchill, we'll kind of go in reverse here, his flaws and his failures that we would today rightly criticize, they made him into the man that he was, and they in some ways allowed him to do the great work that he did. You have to recognize their failures in the context of history, understand them, be repulsed by them. I mean, he called, as I said, Gandhi horrible things, and he had awful things to say about black people and brown people and Asians and all the rest, you condemn that, but that doesn't mean you don't read about it, you don't learn about it, you don't see those events within the broader context of who that person was. When it comes to Lincoln, 
you don't paint this portrait of a man who could do no wrong every decision he's ever made. I think of some of the biographies of Lincoln that I've read, and I won't mention any names because I want to give you guys good books, but some of the biographies. It's like a moral upstanding oh guy. My like more, he, he did this because he was morally convicted. Yeah, he, all he's these, basically yeah. the second coming of Christ in a top hat. No, he had deep, serious, personal, and political and ideological flaws but they made him into the great leader that he was. And he was a great leader. Second, third greatest president we've ever had, depending on your political who affiliation you ask, yeah. and who yeah, and who you ask. You can't ignore or whitewash the bad, but you also don't go the opposite direction and say, because Lincoln at one point was okay with slavery, or because Churchill was okay with racist policies in India, or because Gutenberg was a scoundrel. That taints everything they've ever done. That, if you want to do that, okay, that's fine. That is very ahistorical, and again, it's disingenuous because we have the benefit of hindsight. We opened this podcast talking about these turning points, and you and we have the benefit of hindsight looking back at this entire period. We have the luxury of criticizing people, not just these three, but anyone. You know, pick whoever you want. Founding fathers, great example. Were they great men? Yes. Were they also deeply flawed men? Yes. Does that mean that we tear down statues, maybe, let's have that conversation, but it doesn't mean that the country they've founded is inherently and automatically and forever evil. So that's where I think ideology and various worldviews, not to get political, but on both the left and the right, really come into play and really distort truth, I think is the best way to put it. Yeah. So it's looking at history as it was. And seeing these people in history mm-hmm. who caused these these turning points, who caused these 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 changes that forever shifted history, mm-hmm. and seeing them for how they were, and seeing the good things that they did to save the world, who who did these things such as allow people to actually read the mm-hmm. printed word to free people who were slaves, but we also see the other side of it, their flaws as well. So as honest historians, we look back and we say. These are the good things. These are the positive things that affected positive change in society and the world as a whole. And then we're honest about the bad things to say, I'm not going to be that way. Right. I'm going to focus on these were accomplishments here. And these were things that were flaws that were wrong mm-hmm. that I can personally decide not to go along with. Right. That's the, I don't want to say magic of, of doing this, <laughs> but it's, it's, the, it's the freedom to look back on that and make that choice on your own, honestly. And Absolutely. Being, yeah. And, so and for you to influence your own history. Because exactly. Because, again, we're not, nothing is determined. None of this was predetermined, preordained. Yeah, absolutely. So having that understanding may contribute to your own turning point, whether that be in your home, on your street, in your town, in your world. Yeah. So just having that honest view of history and applying that truth there. Well said. Thank you for joining us for a discussion of The Trail of the Past. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you hear this podcast. It really does help. Thanks, and we'll see you all next week.